Hello and welcome to another edition of Loose Cannon, the Civil Liberties podcast. And today I'm joined again by my esteemed co-host, Parnell McGuinness. Hi, Parnell. Hi, nice to be here again. Yep, nice to be here with you as well. Um, so I've got some things on my mind, with, you know, inevitably about the lockdown because, you know, what else is there to talk about? Uh, I was thinking back to what you told me a few weeks ago about walking through the city of Sydney and seeing so many police and being uncomfortable with it and telling your son that this isn't normal. And I was wondering if you felt the same discomfort with what you saw in Melbourne over the last couple of weeks in terms of police and police behaviour. Yeah, look, I've got to say I'm deeply, deeply uncomfortable with the images, but also with the interpretation in many ways. Like I'm, I'm very surprised that images of quite brutal action on behalf of the police in Victoria, but we also got images of this like this out of New South Wales, were received and almost cheered on by, by some people who I would have expected to be more appalled by them. It's like the, the cause in this case justifies police brutality. Yeah. And now I'm not ending the, the protesters, and certainly in Melbourne the protests got very, very ugly, but I still think that we need to grapple with the way that the police have been licensed to behave. Yeah, it's really topsy-turvy the world we're living in where people sort of on the progressive side, I'm generally in agreement with on most substantive issues who are usually very into protesting and very sensitive to police violence. They may be okay with this kind of police behaviour against protesters because they're the wrong kind of protest. It's, it's, it's very odd. And people on the right who are normally all supportive of heavy-handed policing, you know, against troublemakers are suddenly up all, you know, all up in arms. Very, very odd. Well, hang on. I'm just going to pull you up on that one because somebody said that to me on Twitter the other day and I had to think and I had to think, you know, when? When has the right ever come out? Okay, not the, you know, hard right, but when has the sort of right commentariat ever come out in support of police brutality? I don't recall this ever happening. I haven't seen columns saying they should have beat up on the Black Lives Matter protests. There was never any support for police brutality. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, this is a bit of a different discussion, but to me, there's a really dubious premise at the heart of the lack of sympathy for the protests and that this, and that is that this particular human activity taking place outdoors spreads COVID. And even I, if, even if I accept that that's right, which I don't, but let's just say that I'm wrong on that because I'm allowing my, you know, biases to screen out evidence that I want to hear. Let's just assume I'm, I'm wrong. I'm still very disappointed that progressive voices in Australia have given such little weight and accorded, have accorded such little importance to the right to protest free from this kind of heavy handedness. I mean, I don't understand why the police couldn't have cooperated with the protesters to make them a safer event. I mean, you know, instead of this sort of aggressive approach. And, and to me, you know, even if the, in the face of the health risks that, you know, potentially exist, I just think it should be accepted. It's not Ebola. It's not like the, you know, we're not talking about 90% death rate because, you know, without this ability to protest, what kind of democracy do we have? And I think built into my worldview on this is a really uh, deep scepticism that 
once given the power to decide what protest is allowed and what isn't, whether it's the police or, or the chief health officer or whoever it is, that power is just not going to be given up easily. They'll, they'll always say it's something temporary, just like with the 9-11 uh, you know, anti-terrorism powers, but then that's just not how the world works. Having got this and power over people's lives, they're just going to find reasons why it always has to stay the way it is and never go back to the way it was, you know. Absolutely. And look, I mean, to relate it back to the Black Lives Matter protests, remember they were infiltrated by Antifa. Antifa make a habit of infiltrating these things and they're an unpleasant mob. They do perpetrate violence. Now, what happened in the Victoria protests we hear is that they were infiltrated by conspiracy theorists but frankly protests are always infiltrated by some groups who are just troublemakers so if that's the basis for closing down protest that there are troublemaker groups that come along and join in then nobody will ever be able to protest again there will always be these groups surely it is the police's job to separate out those groups or separate out the troublemakers but not affect the peaceful protest. Such a good point, yeah. Um, I think there's also this kind of, I know I sound very negative, but I just can't ignore the alarm, I feel, that the devilish thing about the way, and it's not just the Victorian government, it's all the other governments too, that the way they cast this, this authoritarianism is in the name of safety or you know safetyism it's always this nice fluffy language about the right to protest being balanced with other rights and i just have to laugh kind of laugh and cry when i read this explainer that i found published by the victorian human rights commission about protests during covid and i, I just i quote it to you it says it's critically important in a democracy that people can join together and speak up on issues of communal importance. While public gatherings in Victoria are currently not permitted, there are other ways in which people can protest and express their views, which do not violate the public health orders and respect the human rights of other Victorians. These include signing a petition contacting your local member of parliament and gathering online to discuss your concerns. Now, that's every fibre of my being just rebels at this statement. There's just no way that having a Zoom call is the same as having thousands of people outside Parliament. And actually, we can't gather online because the government passed and, and the opposition passed this identify and disrupt bill to kind of surveil us online and possibly shut down our accounts. So. Absolutely. And from the perspective of, you know, the right, the right, um, of politics has been saying that these social media organs are shutting down what they say. Now, there's, there's you know, right and wrong in that argument, and, but, but it is true that they have a lot of power, those social media, the social media outlets. And if we're giving them, if we're moving the, the public square from the public square to social media, then all of a sudden we are making it vulnerable to different kinds of censorship and suppression. Absolutely. So to sort of develop the ideas we've talked about, let's, uh, let's hear about our guest today. Sure, yes. I'm really excited and interested to, to introduce Julian Burnside. Um, he's an Australian barrister and a human rights and refugee advocate and author. He's also known for his strong opposition to mandatory detention of asylum seekers and has provided legal counsel in a wide variety of high-profile cases. In 2009, he was made an officer of the Order of Australia, um, that's an AO, 
her service as a human rights advocate, particularly for refugees and asylum seekers, and to the arts as a patron and fundraiser and to the law. He's past president of Liberty Victoria, and I would also note an ambassador for the National Secular Lobby. And I'm just dropping that one in because I think there might be a line of inquiry in this later on during our discussion. Thanks so much for joining us, Julian. Very good to be with you. So, Julian, so many questions we could ask you. Let's start with your view on what we were just talking about, the, the protests and the, the police is, is it, as a past well, president of Liberty Victoria. What do you sure. think? On the assumption that you're both adopting more or less the same line, I have to say I disagree with both of you. I, I must say I thought um, that the police, it might have been very difficult for the police to cooperate with individual protesters so as to make the protests safer because how do you decide who are the real protesters and who are the right, right-wing hanger, hangers-on? Um, you made the point, I think, Jonathan, that um, it's not Ebola with a 90% death rate. That is true. Um, but I'm not sure that that quite meets the point, given that this is a disease which is spread from person to person, especially at mass events like that, where it has to be noted most of the people were not wearing masks. And I, I just think that the idea of balancing the right to protest against other rights really falls in favour of pre preventing protest meetings like those. The, the right to protest is all very well, but if, if it comes at the cost of the health of members of the community, then that's a different matter. So, I mean, I guess there, I guess I don't want to get too much into the medical side, but I mean, let's just say that, you know, there's no right answer. It's all about where you draw the line on risk, given that we're being told outdoor pool swimming is fine and, you know, and, and you know, things outdoors are generally safe. Aren't you concerned that we're drawing the risk line like way too cautious, in, in a way too cautious way? In other words, we're not giving the appropriate weight to the right of people to protest um, when the risk is very, very small. And if if we're saying, okay, this very, very small risk is still still a problem that we need to address by preventing things like protests outdoors, when does it become okay again? You know what I mean? Like uh, at what point do we say, like, this is unacceptable, like to stop people from protesting? This is just such a fundamental thing in a democracy. Well, um, I just want to raise one point that I think you mentioned, Jonathan, and that is that uh, the people do not get the disease by contact with others outside. I just don't think that's right, is it? I didn't. Well, I don't know about contact. I just mean like they're, they're close. To, I mean, well, I'm close to lots of people in the outdoor the pool, but we're allowed to do it. And I, you know, there's no, no that's sense. That's in New South Wales. Mm. That's in New South Wales, right? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. And New South Wales, I have to say, New South Wales has not handled the matter very well. Um, but when, when did New South Wales allow people to go to swimming pools? It's very recent now, I think, isn't it? Correct, very recently, yeah. But, I mean, the ocean yeah. pools are always open and there were lots of people gathering to go to the ocean pool. I mean, when I say gathering, I mean, they're, you know, people naturally don't sort of stand right next to each other in outdoor places where there's heaps of space. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not something yeah, that... But they do at protests. Yeah, yeah. And, frankly, the 
footage which I saw on television of the protests had lots and lots of people standing very close to each other and screaming and shouting and um, things that I would say probably on our current knowledge of COVID probably increase the risk of the spread of COVID. Mm-hmm. Now, if we had clear information that what was going on at those protests could not spread the disease, then I would say I would agree with most of your points. But that is not my understanding of the position. I mean, for you, I mean, obviously, it's you're not speaking for any organisation, just for yourself. Like, when do you think would be acceptable to lift those restrictions on protests? Like, you know, is it... It would be acceptable to lift those protests when it was plain that COVID could not be spread in those circumstances. But surely but that's never going to happen. People, I mean, there's going to be some people who are not going to be vaccinated. You know, we're not, can't, can't, we can't force everyone to be vaccinated. I mean, is that just a recipe for saying, well, from now on, we don't get to protest? Um, no, I don't think so, because there are lots and lots of things that are not susceptible to transmission from one person to another merely because they're in the same physical space. No, but what I'm saying is that COVID is going to be with us for a long time. Is that it? From now on, we don't get to protest if COVID is around, which it will be? Um, if COVID remains as deadly as it presently is, then I think the answer to that question is yes. My understanding is that it will not be as deadly as it presently is in the medium to long-term future. What if the protest's not about the disease? What if it's about um, asylum seekers? And... Um, well, to be candid, I'm not sure that protests are a very effective way of drawing attention to a particular problem. So um, in, in all my, well, what, two decades now that I've been talking about asylum seekers, um, the idea of protests has not been amongst the range of possible activities that have occurred to me. Mm. Now, maybe that's why I've not achieved anything in the last <laughs> couple of decades. Uh, dear. Um, <laughs> Julian, I'm, I guess I'm surprised by that response, especially for someone who's been involved in liberty well, civil liberties organisations. Um, do you think it's a sort of you bring a particularly Australian view to this in the sense that you know most americans would probably be horrified at the at the sort of um very how shall i say pragmatic approach you've taken to this as in you know the principle of protest is not really that important it's more well you know the sort of practical implications or how how would you characterize um, your take on this i i guess my well, you've got a get my take on it correctly, and I may have expressed it badly before, but I would say that you should not be able to express your protest to a thing which threatens all of us in ways which increase that threat. And it's really balancing up the sacrifice of individual rights for the protection of the rights of most of us. Now, there's no doubt that if... The, if, the, um, if the risk of COVID infection is increased by protests against 
steps taken to reduce that risk, then I don't have a problem with the idea that those protests should be thwarted. And are you happy with the health officer, chief health officer or the premier deciding what is an acceptable protest? Um, They know probably more about the mechanism of spread of this disease than most of us. And if they think that the protest uh, jeopardises or enhances that risk, then I would say the answer is yes. I would be prepared to accept their statement of that. Now, unlike you, I live in Victoria, and I think human rights are fairly well treated in Victoria by the police and so and recently by the health department. So I'm not as anxious about it as you are from Sydney. This sounds very much like the reasoning which the courts used when... Um, in the various attempts to challenge the public health orders, the emergency public health orders, which were keeping Australia locked down and and preventing uh, travel between the states as well. Essentially, their reasoning was, well, the health authorities know better, and so therefore we will do as the health authorities consider is right, which seems to me to make sense in a certain degree, but it also seems to me concerning that there are no limits and no way to question or challenge it because emergency order after emergency order has now been approved. And these and under these emergency orders, a number of policies are enacted, a, a number of things like curfews are imposed upon the people, which actually have no scientific basis in preventing the disease so an emergency power can cover an awful lot of things and there was just no way to challenge the the court on uh, the court which had said we do everything what the health we do everything that the health officials tell us to do so how do you think about that Julie and I, I'm curious to to you know at what stage do you say this we now have to be able to challenge the health the health authorities? Well, I guess the, uh, the practical answer to that would be, was there any evidence that the health authorities didn't know what they were talking about? Because that is the way to challenge that reasoning. So now, one of the, in one of the cases um, in, in Victoria, actually, a, a woman bought, brought a case in which she mentioned curfews as something which has no basis in scientific evidence around the world that that actually um, reduces the infection, or reduces COVID infections. And the, the judge in that case said, well, it's part of a suite of measures and we can't tell which of these suite of measures is effective. And so therefore we're going to uphold it and wave the whole thing through. So it was sort of waved through under this suite of measures justification. But then if that can be waved through, then how can anything be challenged? Everything is then part of a suite of measures. The way things can be challenged is by directly going to the point you made earlier, that it is assumed that the health authorities know more about the subject than the rest of us. Now, if that could be disproved, then... um, I think it would be very difficult to succeed in the 
I think it would be it would be a lot easier for challenges like that to succeed. Is there any sense that you have that this is sort of the zealousness and the cruelty towards asylum seekers over the last 20 years has any parallels um, with what we're seeing now you know, in terms of the zealousness of the policies that we're applying to ourselves? And it seems to me something that is um, very sort of inflexible and cruel is the way that the COVID restrictions have been implemented, including state border closures and refusing to allow people to get medical treatment when the risk is so stupidly small and, you know, people are willing to do everything like quarantine for 14 days and there's still like this kind of ob obstinate refusal by certain state governments to bend on anything and it just seems to me like a very very interesting parallel it reminds me very much of the sort of pointless cruelty of the asylum seeker detention i mean i agree that the uh, treatment of asylum seekers is pointlessly cruel um at at that point i don't think i share your view about the common thread but that said it seems to me that the mistreatment of asylum seekers has been supported largely by the dishonesty of the government and the opposition, coupled with the complicity of the, uh, of the Murdoch press. And by that, what I mean is that John Howard, at the time of Tampa, or immediately after the 9-11, because, you know, the, the judgment in Tampa was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon Melbourne time on the 11th of September 2001, and that a few hours later, the attack on America happened, and that's when both people started being called illegals. Now, the idea that you lock up people who've broken the law makes sense. It's just part of our DNA. It was Howard and especially Morrison later as immigration minister who said that this whole mistreatment of asylum seekers was an aspect of border protection. Now, the idea that you're locking up criminals to make us safer makes a lot of sense. And people who hear that and get their news primarily from Murdoch sources, they've got no reason to investigate the underlying facts to find out whether it's true or not. They just accept it. And interestingly, as recently as a few weeks ago, when uh, the present Minister for Immigration, Alex Hawke, moved the Biloela family from Christmas Island to Perth, he issued a press release, and the last paragraph of the press release, quite a short press release, the last paragraph of it refers to people who come to Australia illegally. So they, uh, they clearly think that the illegal tag does its work, and uh, it's very, very difficult, as I know, it's very difficult to get a contrary message in the Murdoch press. Juliana, on, on that, though, I, I wonder, um, I would like to press you on that point, because... The fact that the government made it illegal for Australian citizens to enter the country or latterly to leave it um, seems, to, seems to mirror the illegality of asylum seeking quite neatly. And I do, I mean, furthermore, I would say that the technicality on which the government says that it's that it's illegal for asylum seekers to come to Australia is that they're resting on UN human rights law in which um, an asylum seeker has to seek asylum in the first viable country, in the first safe country, rather than 
choosing the, the country that they wish to get to. So that's what the government says is illegal. Um, so they, so there's a technicality which sort of makes sense of it in, in that case. But by contrast, the idea that it might be legal, or sorry, illegal for an Australian citizen to enter or leave the country to, of which they hold a passport or permanent residency um, seems quite an extraordinary breach of, of human rights and the meaning of citizenship, wouldn't you say? I mean, don't you see a, a comparison on, and possibly one leading to the other? Or um, I, don't, I don't see the link between them. I don't accept that there's a link between them. Uh, I do agree that it's outrageous that the, that the Australian government did not let people back into the country who are citizens of Australia. Um, and if it comes to that, let's be honest about the fact that an Australian citizen is now in great trouble in England, and that's Julian Assange. Our government has done nothing to help him, absolutely nothing. Um, and that's shocking. Uh, I don't accept your point about the UN ruling that you have to seek asylum in the nearest available country. Um, and I'm not sure how many people who come to Australia seeking asylum or came to Australia seeking asylum would have been rejected on that ground in any event. But if you look at Article 14.1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it says that every human being has the right to seek asylum. And that seems to me to be perfectly sensible and rational. And we have betrayed that idea totally. Actually, I might just ask you about Julian Assange. So the way that, you know, you, you talked about the way that Julian Assange has been, you know, the Australian government hasn't done anything to help him, which is, you know, it, it is quite astonishing and, and extraordinary. Um, do you see what's happened to him as part of a kind of, you know, concerted effort by the US to kind of subvert legal process in Sweden and in the UK and a lot of odd things have happened in both those countries. Like how do you see what's happened to him? Like, do you, do you have a take on, um, you know, uh, how this has come about? Um, I spent some time with Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in, I think July of 2012, not long after he went into it and with his help, I drafted a letter to the then Labor Attorney General of Australia, Nicola Roxon. Um, in that letter, I set out the facts that he was concerned about, namely that he was then uh, seeking to avoid being extradited to Sweden because from Sweden, he was likely to be sent to America. And in America at that time, Chelsea Manning was being treated very badly by the American authorities, uh, presumably on the Daniel Ellsberg principle that if you publish something, you're okay. If you release something illegally to a publisher, you're not okay. Um, that was the that was the Chelsea Manning point. Anyway, the Australian Labor government at the time did absolutely nothing. In response to that, they could have they could have sent a car in arrangement by arrangement with the British authorities. They could have sent a car to the embassy 
taken him directly to the airport and put him on a, a plane to Australia. That would have got him out of the trouble that he's presently in. Um, now, doing that would be much more difficult to arrange because he's in the middle of a, a court fight. But later on, I sent a similar letter to Malcolm Turnbull and his government did nothing at all. Now, you've there got a Labour government who treated him badly and a Liberal government who treated him badly. And that's why I say that Australia has done nothing to help him. And I would have thought an Australian citizen, uh, however significant or not, should be able to assume that the government will help them as best it, as best it can, but they didn't. And okay, so but just about the, um, you know, the, the, I guess the phenomenon of increasing sort of authoritarian responses with a kind of anti, anti-terror, anti-government sort of justification. Are you are you concerned at how the the sort of increased power of the security agencies and increased surveillance powers it just seems to cascade on and on and on post nine eleven without any. Um, apparent let up yes but what if the national security authorities know better than the courts <laughs> um <laughs> uh, what's the basis for saying that I'm, sorry i'm i'm i was being a bit droll but i was just harking back to the yeah, national yeah, yeah. authorities knowing better than the courts so i mean it's just to you know these these things, it's at what stage can you can you challenge them? Because perhaps the national security authorities know something that we don't. And because of the way that these things work, we have to trust the experts. I, I can immediately see the parallel with what we were discussing before. Um, I guess the answer is um, what powers are the agencies given and to what extent do they depend on the individual assessment of circumstances and to what extent do they depend on the um, discretion of individuals in whom those powers are vested? That, I think, is a perfectly legitimate point. Does it irritate you that so much of the time the language around asylum seekers is cast in this very sort of paternalistic safetyism kind of way about, oh, we have to stop these people drowning at sea or, 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 or as though these people are not adults who can make a risk calculation and decide whether the risk of drowning at sea is worth it? Yeah, I, I think the that approach to the problem is completely misguided. Um, and as you say, people will make their own decisions based on what they understand the risks to be. It worries me that that um, the the government used to say, although it's been equivocal about this, but it used to say that our treatment of refugees was, or of boat people specifically, was justified because it prevents people drowning. Well, there was a wonderful Kathy Wilcox cartoon um, a few years ago. It concerned a bloke on Nauru. He and his family had all been accepted by the Nauruan authorities as genuine refugees. 
they were told that they would be allowed to live in the community in Nauru um, for a few years until they managed to find somewhere else to go. Um, the natives or the locals on Nauru are very hostile to anyone else, including people from Australia and especially including asylum seekers. And so this bloke couldn't bear the prospect of spending the next few years on Nauru. He went to a public place, doused himself in petrol and set himself alight and died as a result. Now, Kathy Wilcox did a brilliant cartoon the following day, which was a simple sketch of a man engulfed in flames and the caption was not drowning. It's interesting, Julian, because that's kind of the way I feel about some of the lockdown policies. I feel like there are so many ways in which people are suffering because of them, including people towards the end of their life not being able to see their families. Um, you know, that's just a feature of the way we've handled it, um, you know, in yep. old people's homes and so on. Um, and I sometimes think, well, you know, if we're all dead, we couldn't catch COVID. That's that's the Kathy Wilcox cartoon there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Can I convince you that, uh, you know, um, there might be some parallels here? Um, give it a go. Well, you know, I mean, if there are, there are people uh, who um, are not going to get regular medical checks because they're too afraid and they're, they're dying because of that. There are people who are, um, you know, because they're afraid of COVID, you know, um, going to the hospital, I mean, you know, because they've, they've been instilled with fear. There are people who are just being denied the right to see their family in the last days of their life. There are people who... And just this yeah. week we had another suicide in hotel quarantine and there have been many, many mental health issues in children as a result of this closure of schools. So I think yeah. I think there's a, a good case to be made that there are many harms in the COVID response. There, there's one aspect of this which is worth considering. I was rather hoping when... Victoria passed its 200th day of lockdown, um, that attitudes in Victoria to the idea of locking up innocent human beings without charge, without offence, without charge, without trial, um, they just put in detention for years on end. Um, I was rather hoping that that might shift people's attitudes, but it didn't. Has your attitude and, towards lockdown shifted? Um, no, actually, it hasn't, because I think lockdown is justified, even though it's a pain in the neck. It is justified because it reduces the risk that we all face of getting a disease. Now, I say that as an older person who's had both uh, AstraZeneca shots. Okay, in theory, that means that um, I shouldn't be able to get the disease, but... Um, if there is a risk and the authorities think that the risk is minimised by lockdown, then I support the idea of the lockdown. Are you going to take some overseas travel soon? I hope not. You, you, don't, want to, you, don't, you don't feel like leaving Australia and going overseas again anytime soon? <laughs> um, for a trip, no, because I'm actually, I actually don't like travelling all that much. Um, what if what if I like travelling? On the other hand, I would consider leaving Australia permanently and going to New Zealand if my views about 
Australian attitude turned out to be wrong. Um, you know, what, 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 what do you mean going to New Zealand? Why, why go to New Zealand? Well, Sorry. Because New Zealand strikes me as a country that is similar to Australia in many ways, but a lot more enlightened. And they've actually got a leader. But, you know, okay, there are still some people who are very interested in travelling just to bring us back to the refugees. And, and I want to continue on this point because it just, I just remembered there was a news report the other day about refugees from Haiti where things are perennially awful um, and they've been entering the US. And the, the author of this article, I don't remember who the author was, but the article was pointing out the paradox in this situation that you had refugees coming into the US from a country in which there are no COVID controls, they could be bearing anything and we're in the middle of a pandemic, into a country in which everybody will be expected to wear masks from three years old up and in which one of the, one of the sort of key planks of the current government is the prevention of COVID and potential lockdowns and restrictions on society as a result of that. Is there, is there a limit to the free movement of people in a pandemic if it's for refugee, refugee purposes? You mean should refugee movement be inhibited because of the risk of COVID? If that's what the question uh, means, I would say the answer is no. Right. But so if we're not going to prevent refugees from moving, why prevent people from countries which are much which have much stricter controls around and tests for COVID from moving into other countries in a in a way which is much more orderly? Because refugees only move in order to save their lives. Um, that's very different from people who move around just because they think it's enjoyable. Or because they have business business to do in another country or family that they want to visit. Um, human relationships are global these days. Yeah, if, if, if they need to move because they need to see family, that I would say that is in a different category and I'd want to look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. So there are cases, there are reasons which I can be approved to travel for. How does that square with human rights? Having the government approve my, my reasons for travel? Um, my underlying attitude to human rights in this context is that the rights of the individual uh, should not be exercised so as to jeopardise the rights of the majority of people. What people should think about is this. If... If we all, you know, let's suppose everyone in Australia took your view of the lockdowns. Let's suppose everyone in Australia thought it was a dreadful abuse of human rights for the government to act on the base of health reasons to say that you can't go out and protest, you can't go out at all uh, unless you're wearing a mask. How would they feel if the position was you who come from a different country, you're not allowed to go out at all. We're going to jail you and treat you like criminals. We're going to lock you up. We will not let you go to the local park for a walk. We will not let you go to the local supermarket for shopping. We will just lock you up. How would people reckon that was? Well, yeah, I 
I think it's unacceptable. Yeah. So is that the view of the population at large? Well, I think probably not. And probably that's because their politicians are constantly telling them that this is the, you know, the right thing. And, you know, we've got no one who's brave enough to, you know, stand up and say, no, this is wrong. These people are not a threat to us. And uh, it's difficult. Let's, let's be candid about this. The Murdoch press has not helped this. The Murdoch press will not run any line that contradicts what the government likes to hear. And that's oh, Julian, good... I, I really have to pull you up on that one because I have written for the Murdoch press myself and said plenty of things that the government would not like to hear. Um, so did, I, I think... Did they publish is... them? Yes. Did they, did they publish them? <laughs> yes. Good. And on, I have and I have appeared on Sky and said exactly what I think, which I also appear on the ABC and say exactly what I think. And as I said to Elle Fanning, Ellen Fanning one day after I'd just come off Sky and come to the drum, and she said, gosh, isn't that a big change for you? And I said, nope, I'm just going to be saying the same things that I said <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> well, good on you, panel, and I hope that you will one day speak to them about the, the dishonesty of calling boat people illegal. Julian, I want to say thanks for, for joining us. Um, we're about to be sort of <laughs> kicked off the Zoom because we're at one, yes. one minute. Um, but, um, yeah, I really appreciate your time and, and having this uh, wide-ranging chat. I'll just say thanks for joining us on Loose Cannon. Please do get in contact. The email address is loosecannonpod at gmail.com. Uh, this email address and also Parnell's Twitter is on the show notes and would like to hear from people on guests to have on and recommendations and comments. So yeah, please do get in touch and uh, see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>